นโมตัสสะภะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะThese days, you know, I'm often speaking to Thailand or Australia or New Zealand, and so I was entertaining the idea of you know, talking with Ajahn Chah. And but the reason I think that that would be his answer is because that was his attitude. That when you end up going without what you want, then he says good. And I'm reminded of something he said when he had visited England and gone back to Thailand and. And he said, "Oh, and in England, there they, they they already have the Buddha and they already have the Dhamma, but they don't have the Sangha. So I've left Samato over there with the other monks. So they've got the full triple gem." And uh, but he also said that he said that he was concerned about whether the Sangha would develop or not, uh, because he said uh, that if you don't go without things, then you don't develop. And the Thai expression for for that is, "may ot may glan, just may jerun." And jerun is to develop or progress. And so, if we don't actually go without, <coughs> then his view was that's an inhibition. And really, from his view, the the life that we have, the life of renunciation, the training we have in renunciation, and in actually learning. To be able to to be able to not get our own way uh, is a privilege, yeah. and and this contrasts very much with the view that there is around generally, which is that renunciation training is really regrettable, and is a kind of a you know something that kind of sad characters do. Um, that if you don't really have a life, then you, you do renunciation. Whereas that's not the way we view it, and that's not the way the Buddha viewed it, and certainly not the way Ajahn Chah viewed it. That although <clears throat> the practice of renunciation is not an obligation, it does give us an advantage, in as much as it it helps to it helps to cultivate the momentum of willingness to let go. We all know the momentum of resistance to letting go. We know the momentum to take for me, you know, to get more for me. I want this. I want that. And and then this momentum of my way, uh, it's kind of okay. In fact, it's quite fun when I'm getting my way. Uh, although even that becomes rather jaded. And somebody was telling me today. 
they're very well off and they're driving a really nice car and and he was just saying that I had everything materially but I was miserable so even being able to get <coughs> everything we want doesn't necessarily give us contentment clarity, understanding, well-being and so the momentum of always self-seeking is really something that we, anybody who's got an inkling towards the spiritual life is really well motivated towards we want anything that helps us to be able to let go of self-seeking anything that helps us to be able to let go of my way every time we come up against the consequences of our addiction to my way we see how unsatisfactory it is the same chap who was telling me about how he could get everything he wanted but how miserable he was was also telling me how when he was driving to the monastery recently that um, he went six miles too far up the road and got lost and arrived at the monastery late he was supposed to be here by such and such a time and he arrived far too late and and uh, the reason why was that somewhere between Newcastle and here another car started tailgating him got up really really close and that irritated him and he lost his temper he got really angry about this guy and he got so angry that actually he passed the road sign and missed the monastery and went six miles up the road and well you know what is it and he said well that guy shouldn't have been tailgating me so that's why I got angry I said no that's not why you got angry you didn't get angry because that guy was tailgating you you got angry because you chose to get angry and now most of us don't realize that we have that choice and for most of us of course most of the time it's only a potential choice we don't feel like we have that power we don't feel like we have that ability uh, and we feel we feel victim to the passions the anger comes up the sadness comes up the fear comes up and we feel a victim to them and so what was the Buddha's answer to that? well the Buddha's answer to that was training and part of that training is the training in renunciation it's also of course the training in generosity the training in morality the training in concentration and these other aspects of the training but a very important part of the training is renunciation I know Ajahn Punya gave a talk on this a couple of weeks ago and and, but perhaps tonight since we have this wonderful opportunity to practice not getting our own way and maintaining equanimity perhaps I could say a little bit more about this opportunity we have because it's not you know, just when the power goes out or it's not just when those of you who are here are visiting tonight come to the monastery and, and while you're in the monastery you're, you, you know, you're observing the eight precepts you're not eating in the evening and, and so on that's not the only opportunity for practicing renunciation it comes to us all the time you know, every time in fact it's good to be conscious of the opportunities the small opportunities that we have you know, the smaller like this one like the power going off now if the power stays off for a few days it could become a big opportunity yeah. uh, because <laughs> you know I, I would quite like to um, you know have uh, the electricity on in the morning and uh, I hope Kovido is going to be able to cook the uh, power porridge in the morning and um, and then there's various other inconveniences that would come and I don't know how long the wood will last the firewood if the power stays off for very long 
So the small opportunity could become a big opportunity. But while we have got small opportunities, you don't want to miss it. And just say, what's it like when I don't get my way? Now, the way is like this. This is how, this is the way it is. It's like this. From reality's perspective, there's no problems. Right now, there's no problem at all. Now, from my way, perspective of my way, well, it's a bit inconvenient. You know, starting to get cold and there's no amplification system tonight, so I have to be speaking up a little bit. And uh, so, how do we react when I don't get my way? That's that's the barometer. That's the test. You know. yeah. For a, a, an enlightened being, it's just so. It's the way it is. Because for an enlightened being, their heart is at one with the way it is. But for us, the heart is obsessed with my way. My way and the way are not the same way. If my way and the way were the same way, then I would be with the same just-so reality that enlightened beings are in. But how is it with my way? What's going on inside? Usually, for most of us, there's this going, yang, yang, yang going on when I don't get my way. It doesn't start long. Hopefully it doesn't go for too long. We catch it and say, oh no, no that's, not, that's not suitable. But to catch it sooner, that's the point. If we understand the point of renunciation training is that it gives us, a, it gives us the privilege, it gives us an advantage in learning how to let go. Yeah. So, as I said before, renunciation is not an obligation, but it does give us an advantage. We can learn to let go quicker. In the early years of training, of course, you know, sometimes one can have doubts about this. I can certainly remember as a junior monk in an entire land of lots of things that didn't accord with my way. And it wasn't just because I couldn't speak the language and didn't didn't find the food very agreeable or the climate or the mosquitoes or the, the snakes or all the other things or my sore knees but it was mainly the people quite frankly it, was, it wasn't the Thai monks it was the western monks I had to live with the ones that were senior you know I didn't get brought up in a hierarchy like most of us here we, we didn't get brought up in a hierarchy but traditional Theravadan Buddhist monasticism has a hierarchy and there's a point to it, there's an intelligence to it, but it can take a while to understand it. And okay, I had enough faith and confidence in my teacher to give it a go. I thought, well, I'll give this a bash and submit myself to the training, but it was difficult. Why was it difficult? It wasn't difficult because there's anything wrong with Ajahn Sumato. You know, all the other monks ahead of me, there's not there's anything wrong with them, they weren't doing anything to me, but it simply didn't accord with my way. And, and I'd be sitting there, and there's an internal dialogue, just kind of this psychotic kind of auctioneer. You know how auctioneers can go, like they don't stop for a breath, and there's like this inner dialogue going on. So it's not even a dialogue, it's a monologue. There's not even anybody listening, there's just this manic me just going on. It shouldn't be this way. Can't he see it should be like this? Why didn't he do it like that? Didn't he notice that? I could have done that better all the time. And that is my way. That's what it is. And the quicker we admit that and we see that, we say, oh, right, actually, that's really painful. That's really painful. And the teacher's telling us all the time. And, and you know, Ajahn Shah was always pointing out things, you know, like when you wash your bowls, don't sit around and talk. 
say, well, we like talking when we're drying our bowls together. Well, it's not because there's anything immoral about drying, having a conversation while you're drying your bowl, but can you choose to not have a conversation with your mate while you're drying your bowl? That's the point. So with taking on renunciation training, it's not like it's super virtuous if we make ourselves have a bad time, which is what sometimes think people think about renunciation. I think it's like a form of masochism that by making yourself miserable, that actually you're being virtuous. That, that, that has got no room in the Buddhist teachings at all. No way. The, the wisdom behind renunciation is the recognition, and it's important we exercise this wisdom and the mindfulness, the recognition that if I can't give up my way, well then I'm going to be un- I'm miserable. Over and over again. You can't get your own way the whole time. At the very least you're going to get sick and get old and die, and that's... Nobody enjoys that, unless you're an arahant, and then it's probably a break. But for the rest of us, certainly getting old and getting sick and dying is miserable. Why? Not because it shouldn't happen. Has anybody ever been bored that didn't get old and didn't get sick and die? Never. And all the all the all the history of humanity has never happened. And yet somehow we get indignant when it happens to us. <laughs> We don't even like death. We think there's something wrong with death. I was uh, listening to a talk by uh, Lumpur Pasano recently, and and he was talking about what happens in America these days <clears throat> more and more is they they just kind of pretend that death doesn't happen. They tend not to have funerals anymore. They have just a celebration of life, and so this ugly, dirty, smelly, dead body gets cremated somewhere convenient. And then they bring the ashes all nicely ground and put in a nice, beautiful jar. And then they bring them, and I suppose they surround them with lilies and everything. And then they, and then they talk about how wonderful this person's life was. And okay, well, there's a time for celebrating life, but what about this in-between bit, which is really, really painful and unpleasant? This bit called dying. You know, it's awful. Dying is really not easy business. Getting sick is not easy. But this is life. And so the Buddha wanted us to pay attention to life. He didn't want to pay attention. He didn't want us to pay attention to fairy stories. And so he encouraged us. Actually, you know, when there's death, pay attention to death. Now, it's something that perhaps I don't want to do. But if there's a, we're in a wisdom culture, well, then even though I don't want to do it, there's a way of going through it. I, I remember, as a young, as a teenager myself, I remember going to in New Zealand what's called a tangi which is a Maori funeral and uh, they have a, a ritual way of doing it you know everybody knows there's been a loss and even if it's an old person who everybody expected to die still this experience of loss and there's the pain and there's a grieving so everybody joins in on the grieving and you can hear the, the women wailing from miles away they all join in the wailing together and, and there's a real conscious recognition of the loss there's no pretending that this is not painful. There's a group wailing and crying. And then when that's finished, then there's a big party. Then they have a good time. But it seems to be that uh, the more affluent we become, that we tend to want to just amplify the bits that suit me, you know, like the life bit, the nice bit, the fun bit, and forget about that. And the Buddha said, don't forget about that. Just because it doesn't accord with what we want on one level doesn't mean to say it's good for us to ignore it. And so training in, in renunciation 
is uh, about this. It's about recognizing how allowing the addiction to my way to control our lives is just setting ourselves up for guaranteed disappointment over and over again. And so the sooner we get the message, the better. Well, you know, we're pretty stubborn, some of us, and you know, we have to hear it over and over again. You might, um, you might remember the story I, I've told before of a friend of mine who, as a young man, got apprenticed to a very skilled carpenter. And he was lucky to get apprenticed in this way. The carpenter was very, very good. And his father gave him, um, as a gift on the occasion, gave him the very best hammer you could get. And this wasn't a hammer with a you know, kind of plastic handle or even a metal handle. This was a hammer with the best wooden handle, a really good wooden handle, beautifully, perfectly weighted and perfectly finished, the best quality you could get. And so my friend was very pleased with his hammer. But on the job, uh, he was a bit of a slow learner and uh, his, uh, his boss, uh, the carpenter, was teaching him, look, this is, this is the way you hold the hammer. You hold it by the end, the furthest away from the head. You know, you hold it by the tail of the hammer and then you get a good swing. But uh, this guy, he, he felt, well, actually, when you hold it closer to the head, you're more likely to hit the nail. You've got more control over it. It's true. You know, using a hammer, you hold it near the head, you've got more control. Initially, that's true. But you're not getting a very good swing. It takes much more energy to, for the nails to go in. Anybody who's been using a hammer for a while learns that it's much better to hold the he- handle by the tail and you get a good swing. But it's not convenient because you maybe miss a few times and it's difficult. So, so, uh, so this stubborn young fellow basically didn't listen to his boss and uh, he kept holding it by up near the head until one day the, uh, the boss said, could I just have your hammer for a minute? And so he, he took his hammer and then he got the saw and he put it down and he sawed half the handle off. You know, his beautiful hammer was now the handle was half the length. And of course, uh, the, the, uh, this young guy was not very pleased about that. He said, what did you do that for? He said, well, you're not using it, so I might as well cut it off. So, <laughs> of course, the message was, you know, <laughs> you've got a teacher for a purpose. You know, if you think you know better than the teacher, well, then, of course, that's okay. You can, probably the teacher will chuck you out after a while or chop your handle down or something. Mm. If you think you know better than a teacher, you don't really need a teacher. But all of us actually do need teachers. And so the wise thing to do is to heed the teacher, to listen to the teacher. What's the teacher telling us? Well, if you haven't got somebody who's actually there to hold up a mirror to you, when you're exercising your self-obsession and cultivating the power of my way, if you haven't got that, well, you've still got life. Here we live together in community and we're all teachers for each other. I've probably got the biggest mirror that I hold up most often and and these poor guys have to put up with it. Well, actually, they're not poor guys. They're very lucky. I I don't feel sorry for them at all. Uh, They're very lucky that I'm willing to do it. But they hold up a mirror to me quite regularly as well, so it's not like I don't get reflections as well. But uh, even if you're not living in community and you don't have somebody holding up a mirror to you, as I said, you've still got life. When the power gets cut, how does it feel? Does that mind start, why don't those electricity people get their act together? This happens every year. There it is. That is, you're tuned in to my way. 
So do we want to stay tuned into my way or do we want to let go of my way? Well, if we want to let go of my way in accord with the way, the way it is, reality, as it always is here and now, yeah, well then we welcome it. We say, welcome. Yeah. Being stuck in the supermarket line. Yeah, or in traffic. What I really don't like is when I'm being late for a train. You know, you get stuck in traffic. There's that roundabout up near Morrison Supermarket, just going into Newcastle. And I often, when I'm going down to London, I'm going in early in the morning, and the, if you don't get the timing right, there's a, there's a um, traffic jam there. And I can feel this coming up. What is that energy? What is that, that heat that comes up? What is it? That is the passions. That's me not getting my way. What we need to learn to do is to put our hands together and say, Welcome. Welcome. I'm pleased to meet you. Because only when we recognize my way for what it is can we train to let go of my way. And so that's you know, the benefit of, or one of the benefits of renunciation. When I think of renunciation, I think of two main benefits. One is that of actually cultivating the momentum of being able to let go sooner so we don't have to suffer any more than we need to. And we all suffer so much and you know, we hang on and hang on and hang on until eventually we let go. I say, well, why couldn't I have done it sooner? Well, <laughs> just because of our habits. So to cultivate the habit of letting go sooner. And then the other aspect of, of cultivating renunciation <clears throat> is, to <clears throat> is to find out where our energy is. It's to generate energy. This, this momentum of my way also expresses itself as the structure of self, of me. Yeah. It's a psychic structure. That when you're about seven years old, it's very flimsy and very delicate and only just formed. It's called an ego. And, and then as the years go by, it gets more and more rigid and more and more solid and more and more dense and more and more contracted and more and more difficult to see through. It's no longer transparent by the time you're 21, 22, it's not very transparent anymore. And, and then life's tests come along and then they impact on this great big solid ego. Well, where are we going to get our energy from to transform this ego back into something that's flowing and open and transparent again? Where are we going to get the energy from? Well, we've already got all the energy, but often, we, often it's all being gobbled up by the ego. The deluded ego is like a cancerous cyst that's consuming all the energy of the organism. You know about you know, a little bit about medical science that you know a cancerous cyst develops in the body, and and then slowly the body gets weaker and weaker and weaker because the cyst is gobbling up all the energy. Well, so it is with the deluded ego. Notice that I'm talking about the deluded ego. The ego structure itself is perfectly just so. There's nothing wrong with the ego as it is, as a function, as a, as a structure of the mind. But when it's deluded, it becomes contracted and compacted and doesn't serve its function properly. And so the task is how to find the energy. Where do we find the energy? How do we release the energy? How do we access the energy that's going to bring about the transformation of this unhappy, clumsy, contracted ego? Where are we going to find that energy? Well, renunciation is one of the best ways of doing it. 
And so, whether it's in a formal practice, like you know, once a once a week or once a month, so no internet, no email, no telephone for a day, you know, one one day a month, or, or half a day a week, or something, you know, or then obviously the other forms of of uh, nourishment you can have with um, with food, you know, going the traditional practice of of not eating in the evening, one day a month, or traditionally one day a week, but people live busy lives, even if it is only one day a month, to still take this on as choose, say, I'm choosing to not eat in the evening, not because it makes me super virtuous or better than other people, not at all. The best thing is to don't tell anybody. If you're doing renunciation practices, don't tell anybody. Or if you tell anybody, maybe just tell somebody who you consider a good spiritual friend, Somebody who you know is not going to get impressed with you. Yeah. But any who you, anybody who you think might be impressed with you, don't tell them that you're taking on renunciation practices because then the ego feeds on it. Yeah. So we're practicing renunciation not so that the deluded ego can become more swollen, but so that we can let go of it. Yeah. And so we do it with understanding, with mindfulness, with contemplation. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's in a a formal circumstance <clears throat> of some particular practice that we might be taking on in a formal situation, going on retreat, or yeah, or in the everyday situation of life, when I don't get my way, again when you're driving or in the supermarket or you know, the power goes down, to see how quickly we can bring this to mind. See, what What's the problem? There is no problem. The Buddha never had any problems. Okay, the Buddha might have faced some difficulties. He had difficult monks and he had arthritis and, you know, he went without food and so he experienced difficulty, lost his friends, they died. and So the Buddha experienced difficulties, but the Buddha, did the Buddha have any problems? No. Why not? Because he didn't resist the difficulties. As soon as they arose, he was able to see through them, said, this is the way it is. For the Buddha... His way and the way were one. For us, my way and the way are very rarely, if ever, one. And so we have this opportunity to practice. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm. <coughs>